Hello, and welcome to the Best Ever or Guilty Pleasure Podcast. My name is Jarrett, and I love movies. Today, we will be watching a polarizing film. Uh, It's a movie that I feel was pretty firmly in guilty pleasure territory when I first watched it. Uh, I'm not sure that would be that would change uh, really into the best ever category. Uh, I am, of course, talking about a Michael Bay extraordinaire, Armageddon. Released in 1998, it was directed by Michael Bay. It stars Bruce Willis, Ben Affleck, Liv Tyler, alongside a seriously star-studded cast. Michael Bay is a uh, pretty infamous director. His movies seem to all be polarizing. He has become synonymous with big-budget, explosion-filled blockbusters. He uses a lot of orange and teal colors, Dutch angles, and of course, as I've said it before, and I will probably say again lots and lots of times, uh, explosions, and lots of them. He has uh, directed all of the Transformers movies, uh, which have grossed so much for him that he is currently the fifth highest grossing director, sitting right behind Spielberg and Peter Jackson. Of all of Michael Bay's movies, uh, it is not the worst rated. Uh, It actually sits at a 38% critic score and a 73% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. That is uh, right around his average critic rating of 39%. I'm a big believer that you can't really judge a movie by its critic score. I think I've said it before in, in, in other podcasts, and uh, this is definitely the case with this, with this movie. The surprising thing about this movie is that the audience rated it so high. 73% is respectable. So that's why I chose this movie. Uh, and I am partially ashamed to admit this, but I, I liked this movie. I will say that Michael Bay is aware of his criticism, And he has said uh, things like, they love to hate me, and has defended the terrible ratings of all the Transformers movies by saying that they're kids' movies, so why are these adults rating them so low? This movie was the highest grossing movie worldwide in 1998, with $553 million at the box office. Despite mixed reviews, the movie was released with the Criterion Collection as Spy Number 40, so it was one of the early ones. It was selected as an example of chaos, razzle-dazzle, and explosion. So it was literally accepted into the Criterion Collection, a distribution company that puts out versions of important classic and contemporary films because it was great at explosions. The story wasn't really all that believable when I first watched it. Uh, So essentially what's happening is an asteroid is hurtling toward Earth. And the only way to save it apparently, is to send a group of oil drillers into space, drill a hole of a certain depth into the asteroid, and then drop a nuclear bomb so it can split and float past the Earth. You may think that I have written it that way, uh, in a way that makes it sound ridiculous, but uh, I challenge you to try to make it sound less ridiculous. There's lots of family drama, space-related drama, and explosion-related drama meaning the the nuke. I remember knowing that the plot was ridiculous whenever I watched it, but I'm, I'm taking this movie as it is. When you take it too seriously, you will likely be disappointed. But if you watch it knowing that it's a Michael Bay movie, I think that you'll have a good time. I know we're before the spoiler warning, but I have to admit that watching the final scenes uh, originally uh, actually made me tear up a little bit, I remember. I'll go into detail on that later, but I never thought that a Michael Bay movie would make me emotional. 
uh, would definitely be the last one that does that. I remember disaster movies like this being all the rage in the 90s. You have Independence Day, Titanic, Twister, Apollo 13, Volcano. All of those were just super popular at the box office. After 9-11, the disaster film genre took a small hiatus, uh, with a lot more of the popular ones coming back into the mainstream uh, about 2006 on. There is something about a good disaster movie. I don't know if any of these types of movies can really be considered a favorite movie, but they usually fall firmly in the guilty pleasure category. I, I guess I'm not really bearing the lead on this one, but I, but I hope you'll stick around, even though I've already pretty much said where I think this is going to land. Next up, I will watch the movie, take notes, and report back. I guess I will be confirming that this is still a guilty pleasure. Uh, is it still watching? Uh, still worth watching one in 2023? This is your spoiler warning, so if you haven't seen this movie, go watch it and come back. I'll be back in a bit. And we're back. We have a lot to talk about. I forgot that this movie was two and a half hours long, so there's a lot to wrestle with. First things first, I will follow up on some of the things that I mentioned in the opening. Let's talk about explosions. I mentioned that earlier a lot, and I think it's important that we mention it now. I decided that I would count the amount of explosions in the movie as I started to watch it. First, the bad news. I couldn't figure out if I should count the explosions because, uh, like, how I should count them because there are, you know, a lot of smaller ones that led to even bigger ones, and and honestly, I I lost track because there were so many, uh, and I'm not kidding. Um, I'm I'm a, I'm afraid that in the panic of trying to count, I, I was inconsistent and I, and I wasn't able to really finish. So my number uh, that I originally wrote down, uh, I I think is was probably a lot lower than was actually represented. Represented, um, But thankfully, the internet has come to save the day, and a lot of Eagle Eye viewers have counted for me, uh, and the unofficial count in this movie is 121 explosions. That is uh, what is <laughs> what this is called uh, an, a .8 EPM rate. EPM, of course, stands for explosion per minute. And that's not the largest EPM of Michael Bay movies, um, as the Transformers movies typically have over one explosion per minute, which is just ridiculous. Secondly, I want to talk about Michael Bay. Uh, I thought a lot about this movie's entry into the Criterion Collection and why it was placed in, in there. Because those movies are ones that you... Uh, that you see that are just the really good directors or uh, movies that are just so visually appealing, uh, movies that are important to the the furthering of the film uh, medium. And then you have Armageddon. Uh, not much is known why um, it was placed in the Criterion Collection outside of an essay written by a film studies professor at Wesleyan University, uh, Janine Bassinger. Uh, she said that the movie was never confusing, never boring, and that it does what a movie should do. Tell a good story, depict characters through active events, invoke an emotional response, and entertain simply and directly without pretense. I would have to agree with all of that. You, you can't really argue that this movie checks all of those boxes. You don't have to like it, but it's true, and I think it deserves a spot for that. 
I feel like when you watch a Michael Bay movie, you you know what you're getting yourself into. Fast pans, fast zooms, forward movement uh, of the story with minimal callback to stuff before it. Uh, intense moments, emotional moments, and yes, so many explosions. Uh, the formula works. I mentioned earlier that he's the fifth highest grossing director. And, and honestly, he's, he is just truly unapologetic in his methods. He does what he likes, and he does it well. Let's talk about the pacing and intensity of this movie. Uh, the stakes of the movie are clearly high. Uh, if the team fails their drilling expedition, the world ends. Just simple as that. That, compounded by the timeline of the asteroid, multiplied by the inexperience of the crew, and throw in one nuclear bomb, that makes for a lot of drama and a lot of extreme situations. There are so many ups and downs of this movie. You have the, the nuke counting down twice with the last time stopping with just under three seconds you have harry waiting until the last few seconds to detonate the nuke before zero barrier you have the destruction of the mere space station with lev and aj making it back to the independence right on time you also have the eventual destruction of the independence and the near miss of the two shuttles before colliding they they literally Kind of one flips over and flies over the other. Uh, I could go on because there's tons more of these really close call, super intense moments. Uh, but those are the major ones that come to mind. Uh, the movie starts with a narration by Charlton Heston, of all people, um, talking about the destruction of the dinosaurs and, and the massive asteroid that allegedly killed them. And it just never stops from there. Even at the end, after the destruction of the asteroid, uh, the story quickly moves on to wrap up all of the various subplots, and more on that later, and goes straight to the, the wedding scene uh, within minutes of the asteroid just uh, being destroyed. Uh, Michael Bay has gone on, uh, to, on record saying that once the enemy is destroyed, the movie is over. And that really illustrates why everything wrapped up so quickly in the end. And this is a common theme in Michael Bay's movies. Now on to the drama. And there's obviously a lot of drama. And I have to say, Michael Bay and the writers do a good job of setting the drama up for emotional payoff in the end. It may be very simply done, but it's effective. Uh, let me go over a few, few examples. Uh, first is Truman. This one is probably the, the worst done because it's really on the nose, uh, but, it, but again, it's effective. He's clearly important at NASA. But we don't find out much about him until we learn about um, his leg brace. Just shows up randomly in a scene, and then we learn all the backstory about it. It's just a dump um, of, of exposition. He wanted to go into space for the longest time, but is now relegated to directing the missions from the ground. Harry remembers this, obviously, takes it to heart, and makes sure that, that Truman gets his mission patch at the end, symbolizing his importance for the mission again. Lots of exposition, payoff in the end. Another setup is Chick's story. Uh, we learn pretty quickly during the break, right before they go up into space, that he has a child with a woman who he is no longer with, and he doesn't have custody of this child, apparently. Uh, he clearly wants to be a part of his life, but for some reason, he can't. They don't go into detail. They just show the problem, show what's going on. It's literally like a I don't know, like a five-minute scene, uh, and then they just move on. After Chick returns to Earth, magically, he's reunited with his child and is back in the good graces 
of the woman, like nothing ever happened. All it took was him saving the world, I guess. That's completely unrealistic, but, again, emotionally effective. I honestly found myself cheering for Chick. Uh, The last one really kind of gets to you, and this is the big emotional payoff that I'm sure that they were uh, trying for in in throughout this entire movie. Uh, so in the beginning, it's shown that the relationship between Harry and Grace is strained, to say the least. So much so that he that she calls him Harry, not Dad. Harry is trying to be a father, but it's a little too late, uh, too little too late, and she's all grown up more than he would like. That's a big subplot throughout the entire movie. They clearly care for each other, uh, and that bond strengthens as they go through the trauma of everything that's going on. In the end, during Harry's last transmission to Earth, Grace calls him Daddy. For the first time since we've seen them together. So that's the point that most people get emotional, and honestly, it still works. I got emotional again during this scene. (sighs) Dang you, Michael Bay. One thing I forgot about, but quickly remembered, was how many one-liners were in this movie. Uh, The writers were on to something whenever they wrote this, uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later. Um, Most of the one-liners came from Harry, Lev, and Rockhound, and uh, there's just so many good ones. It's simple, but effective. Um, And and honestly, I think that, compounded with... um, I guess the timeline of where I was in my life watching this movie, there's there's a lot of nostalgia. And I think um, that's one of the big things uh, about this movie is that it for, for those of us who grew up in this era, this movie is nostalgic. Um, there is, there's a lot of this movie that I enjoyed watching it again, but I think that uh, really it's only because... Um, I guess it holds somewhat of a special place for me whenever I watched it originally. Um, there's, you know, a few scenes that when they came up on the scene, uh, on, on the screen, I, I couldn't help but, you know, smile because I was like, I remember this. And yeah, it's cheesy and yeah, it's stupid, but um, it's, it's, it's really something. One of those in particular was uh, the I don't want to miss a thing scene uh where her um aj and grace are together and yeah yeah it's cheesy it's over the top but um i found myself remembering it with fondness and seeing it again it was it was um it was it was good to see it uh there's also the the leaving on a jet say jet plane scene it's 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 a nice <laughs> interesting scene that's kind of a break from all the intensity uh It's also important to talk about the aftermath of this movie. Uh, I mentioned before that this is a disaster movie, and there's a lot that fit into that genre, but this one is often at the top of the best of lists lists for disaster movies. So what makes it so endearing? Uh, I have a theory, and it's probably going to get me a lot of hate. Um, This movie is not as bad as the hate it gets. There's a reason that it has a 73% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. It's entertaining. It has an easy story. Big Rock will destroy planet. Underdog stops that. Underdog Underdog does stop that, but at a cost. It has humor, lots of action, and even tugs on your heartstrings a bit. The formula works. I've said it before, but this is a great example of why I say that so often. Uh, not every movie 
is Citizen Kane or Inception. Not every movie is directed by Fellini or Kurosawa. Some movies just exist to be entertaining, and that's it. I mentioned earlier that the writing was very simple and a lot of one-liners. Roger Ebert, a you know famed film critic, hated this movie, uh, saying that at one point in his review that he didn't even know why the movie needed writers. Um, he even commented on another reviewer's comment. Um, that reviewer said that it will suck the air right out of your lungs, saying like oh, it's it's you know it's breathtaking, it's it's exciting. Um, and he even said in this movie, uh, in this review, if it does, consider it a mercy killing. Ouch. Does this movie deserve that? No, not not at all. But there's just. For, for film critics, there's just such a visceral hate towards this movie, and I don't understand it. There is value in guilty pleasures. Entertainment for entertainment's sake. Sometimes, after a long week, I don't want to watch a movie that will make me think. I, I may just want to watch a movie that really only exists in between the explosions. That's one of the reasons why I started this podcast. I wanted to watch movies that maybe weren't the best, but I remember them fondly. And maybe you should go back and watch them too. All that to say, I'm glad that I watched this one again. It was fun, and that's okay. I probably won't watch it again for another couple years, but it was good to see it this time. Tune in next week as I watch another movie from my past. Until then, watch more movies. <laughs> <laughs>